When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're momming today with Dr. Nicole Sapphire about coronavirus. <laughs> I'm so sick of talking about it, and here we are, uh, like two years in almost. Um, Dr. Sapphire, there's this Omicron variant now. Uh, we know very little about it. Um, apparently, it's very contagious, but you don't get that sick. How worried are you? First of all, you're tired of talking about coronavirus. <laughs> Let me tell you, the last two years, I don't think I've spoken on hardly anything other than the coronavirus. <laughs> It's ridiculous. You know, here we are uh, almost two years later. We're still dealing with COVID-19. Feels like it should be named COVID-22 at this point as we're heading into the new year. Um, But now we have this Omicron variant that is making every single media headline. And something that we've seen throughout the entire pandemic is it's inciting panic. So should it be inciting panic? Well, I I can say at this point, no, absolutely not. We have had many variants throughout the entire course of this pandemic, many variants of concern. Omicron is no different. At this point, we are doing a lot of surveillance testing. We're sequencing. We're looking to see where this particular variant is throughout the country. We recently have confirmed a case in the United States. That's unsurprising as variants tend to quickly spread across the globe, giving our large international travel. But the information we have right now shows, yes, there are a lot of mutations within Omicron spike protein. That's the little thorny crown thing on the surface of the protein, which allows it to enter the human cell. So the big question is, what are the combination of these mutations in that spike protein? What does it cause? Is it going to make our vaccine efforts, make them just as though we did it for nothing? Is it going to escape natural immunity? And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of those answers right now. But I can tell you, it is highly, highly improbable that all of our vaccine-induced immunity, all of our natural immunity, won't have some protection against this variant of concern, as well as other future variants that emerge. So news of Omicron was out on Friday and I had my booster, my third shot scheduled for Saturday morning. And I, I was at the, the pharmacy getting it and I, I, there was several people there and the pharmacist and we kind of scratched our heads. We're like, is, is there a point in getting this booster shot? Because there's so much we don't know. Is it going to be effective against the new variant? And I went ahead with it and uh, the pharmacist had said, well, at least it's going to protect you from whatever variants are out there now from Delta. And I said, you know what? You're right. Um, but, you, you know, th- there's a big credibility stake, I think, for the advisors and the health officials who are saying get vaccinated, get boosted when right now we don't know how effective our treatments and our vaccinations are. I feel like Dr. Fauci and a lot of people that we hear talking right now at the press conferences have such a tunnel vision when it comes to their vaccine campaign that they're really having a hard time communicating effectively with the American public as to why it is still important for people to get vaccinated, why it's important for people to get boosted. And let me tell you, 
So first of all, it has become glaringly obvious, not just from a scientific perspective, but just an everyday perspective that after about six months of after your second mRNA shot, the ability of being fully vaccinated to prevent infection drastically decreases. The good news is it's still preventing severe illness and hospitalization and death in people. But the reason that we still have so much circulating virus, yes, it is because we still have a good amount of the population unvaccinated, but it's also because those who are fully vaccinated can get the virus and transmit it to other people. So what can we do to further lessen transmission in the United States? Well, data shows that by giving a booster dose, you are now ramping up those antibodies again and you are helping to lower infection risk. So it's, again, the ultimate goal is to keep people alive, keep people out of the hospital. But to get the pandemic under control, we also have to decrease viral transmission. And the way to do that is prevent infection. And we know that it is required for a booster dose to do that. A big study just came out in preprint within the last couple of days. It's very interesting. It's called the SIRENS study. It's out of the UK. They looked at over 30,000 healthcare workers from December 2020 to the end of September 2021. So that included that whole Delta wave. And what they showed was the strongest immunity for reinfection or just infection from the virus is if someone has been fully vaccinated and they either had a breakthrough case or they had already been infected and then they got fully vaccinated. That combination of vaccine-induced immunity with natural immunity proves far superior than any other kind of immunity. It also showed that just having recovered from COVID-19, that natural immunity, even after 15 months, goes strong. But what was interesting was that the people who hadn't had COVID, whether before they got vaccinated or after they got vaccinated, and their only form of immunity was being fully vaccinated, that ability to to prevent infection rapidly decreases after six months, which we have seen. And so it strongly supports boosting that population. So if people who are are fully vaccinated and have not had COVID-19, there it is strongly encouraged for them to be boosted, which is really should be the message um, for the American people right now. Um, that was me. <laughs> and there I was <laughs> Saturday morning at month seven. Um, we're going to have more momming today after this, but um, I, I want to get your thoughts on the other side of this, Dr. Sapphire, about vaccinating our young children. We'll be right back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back on We're Momming today with Dr. Sapphire. Okay, you've got a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and an older child. Um, so this hits home for you. You can tell us or not if you vaccinated your kids and um, if you would recommend vaccination. So great questions. And um, I'm a mom. I'm a doctor. I'm a human being. So I have three boys and two of them fall within that five to 11 age group, which recently became eligible for vaccination. 
you know, right as that was happening, I had an opinion piece come out with my friend and colleague, Dr. Marty McCary, also Fox News contributor, in the Wall Street Journal. And it was titled, Should I Vaccinate My Five-Year-Old? And we dissected that Pfizer data for days upon days before writing this. And it was a very well-written piece, and I think it could offer a lot of guidance to people if they want to look it up even further. It's very data-driven. But ultimately... For me personally, my opinion is that for a child that has, for a seemingly otherwise healthy child, I'm not talking about child with risk factors, just a healthy child, if they have recovered from COVID-19 and they have natural immunity, I do not have enough data to prove at this point that there's benefit to vaccinate them as well. I don't know if the risk benefit ratio exists at this point. I think the natural immunity in them, an already low risk population, um, can I just chime in when it comes so, no, Dr. Yep, Sapphire, so if you're on the fence should you ensure that your child um, sometimes we don't should you have your the blood tested to see if they have antibodies to know if your child had COVID or not because we're not testing the kids every day and sometimes they don't have symptoms so we might not know and that's something that can be discussed between a parent and pediatrician you can always go and get antibody tests Um, But if you are unsure, you should just assume that they didn't have it. We don't want to assume that they did have it because kids can get a million viral infections. It doesn't mean it's COVID. So if you're unsure, you don't have that positive test that proves that they were infected, you can either get an antibody test or just, you know, assume that they didn't have it. Okay. Um, It's been a little too black and white, the push with vaccinating younger children. I think that there's a lot of merit to children getting a single dose of the vaccine. The single dose in the vaccine, um, out of some data from um, from Israel, showed 100% ability to prevent infection in adolescents. And we know that the majority of side effects occurs after the second um, dose. So perhaps there should be a conversation surrounding a single dose. A single dose is far better than no dose. So if people are on the fence, that may be a compromise. But I can say, undoubtedly, any child that does have risk factors, and I'm not talking about severe risk factors like asthma or heart disease. I'm talking about just a child who is overweight. These risk factors certainly put them at higher risk for a severe outcome from COVID-19, as well as children who live in households who have vulnerable adults. These are certainly populations where the benefit of vaccination would outweigh those risks. But again, it doesn't have to be an all or none approach. There should be allowed to have a conversation about single dose vaccines, as well as maybe even lengthening the interval between the first and second dose. Um, And then there's parents like me who I'm not saying no, I'm just saying not yet. (laughs) I just need a little bit of time. And and I think for me, if the school would say the mask can come off, I'd be more prone to vaccinate right now. But that's not going to happen um, for a lot of reasons. Do you, looking into your crystal ball, I mean, at what point can the kids take the masks off in school? Well, you know, and I didn't even answer your initial question. So oh, I can tell sorry. you I was the exact same as you. <laughs> I have two healthy young boys, no risk factors. And I did not, I was not first in line to get them vaccinated the day they were eligible. One, because I was busy and working, but two, you know, I also wanted to give it some time. I wanted to see if there were reported side effects. And I didn't believe that, you know, at, at that point, the, the community transmission was low. And I wanted to just give it some time. Now, I'm the same as you. If the school said, if the children can prove 
vaccination, then the mask can come off. Okay, well, that is a huge benefit. And this is that's what it's all about here is risk versus benefit analysis. And it, it would be a huge benefit for children to remove their masks. But schools aren't doing that. And as we head into the winter months, I can tell you, I think there's going to be more masking. And to be honest, I don't think it's necessary. And I think it should have been removed a long time ago, especially as we have continued to see over and over and over again how rare it is for a child to become severely ill with COVID-19. Now, fortunately for me, um, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to play that, um, about three or four days after the kids were eligible to be vaccinated, well, one of my kids actually got COVID-19. And God bless his sweet little heart, he brought it home to me and then to his brother. And the vaccinated individuals in my house, my husband and my older son, did not test positive. I ended up testing positive. I also am fully vaccinated. However, I take uh, immunosuppression medications for an autoimmune disease. So it's unsurprising that I was the one who had the breakthrough infection. But uh, ultimately, the two of them collectively maybe coughed three times while I had mild flu-like symptoms. Here we are a couple of weeks later and we are all fine and we are just roaring ready to go in the winter surge as we have our natural immunity to protect us at this point. So there's the silver lining. Can you talk about a li- <laughs> how <laughs> I mean, I'm trying here. Um, yeah. So I've changed a lot through the course of this. I, I used to be I am so scared of getting COVID and I am, but I. I think the writing's on the wall that at some point, you know, we're all going to have to deal with this and we'll, and we'll be OK. But now I don't want to deal with the headache of getting covid for anybody in my family because you have to shut the whole house down. I, what was that like? Well, I mean, so the, the beginning, the first half of this pandemic, there were a lot of unknowns. And when you have unknowns, that brings uncertainty, that brings anxiety and panic and isolation and everything else that went along with it. The reason that people are feeling, you know, quote unquote, over it at this point is because the American people are very smart. They look at the data. They know what's going on. And yes, while you see the anecdotes that are media catching about, you know, a child, a healthy child who died of COVID or, you know, the mother, the young mother who is hospitalized with COVID. And, you know, this keeps us in a paralyzed sense of fear and panic. And I can tell you that I can show you an anecdote for whatever narrative narrative that you want to be supportive of. But when you look at the overall health of the nation, while we are still dealing with a lot of COVID-19, we know ways to protect ourselves, ways to protect our families, but we also know that we are able to move forward. We are tasked with tools to help us do that through testing and treatments and vaccinations and a large amount of community immunity at this point. And so it really is time for Americans to move towards, uh, you know, moving on. This virus is going to be with us. We've we've accepted flu season. We've accepted flu season, even when influenza used to be a horrible virus that killed many people, and it still does. We have to start changing our mindset to accept it's not just flu season anymore. It's flu and COVID season. What the president said today that at-home COVID tests will be free. So is the future... Uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, you wash your face, you brush your teeth, you swab yourself. And if everyone's negative, the kids go to school without a mask and parents go to work. 
So at-home co- antigen testing, the, that's going to be a very powerful tool moving forward, and it's very important. Uh, right now, you can go to the pharmacy, and the antigen tests are anywhere from 20 to $40. It, it's not practical for the majority of Americans, uh, so they're not, just not testing themselves. Um, the antigen tests are those rapid tests. They're really good at finding positive cases when people are symptomatic, um, but there can be false negatives. And so... It needs to be a huge communication effort to make sure people are aware that even if they have a negative antigen test, if they're symptomatic, you know, they should maybe go and get their PCR test. But I think a huge step forward is to make sure that these tests are affordable, because if we are increasing our rapid testing, I think we will be catching more cases and people won't be going out and maybe they will help decrease transmission. You said earlier um, the side effects for children are typically coming after the second dose. What side effects are we talking about? Is it myocarditis or is it other things? Well, when you look at the adolescent data, certainly the myocarditis, the rate of myocarditis and pericarditis, which is essentially uh, inflammation of the muscles of the heart or the lining of the heart, that was happening in kind of the 16 to 17-year-old, particularly males, and the overwhelming majority after the second dose. Um, When I'm talking about side effects for the younger population, at the time of the Pfizer data, there were no reported cases of myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh, Slight caveat with that is there were less than 3,000 kids given the vaccine, and the rate of myocarditis is about one in 6,000. So the study wasn't powered enough to actually capture those rare side effects which was a part of my mindset of, well, then let me see what happens after 6,000 kids get the vaccine, and then maybe I will consider vaccinating my young boys. Um, But what happened, what they did disclose in the Pfizer data was essentially what you see all the time after vaccines. You know, some kids get fevers, irritability, swelling at the injection site, just kind of not feeling well, kind of feeling crummy for a couple of days. And, you know, While we never want to gamble with natural immunity, I mean, it's very irresponsible to say, hey, you know what, let's just all go out and get it and kind of roll the dice and then we'll have natural immunity. You know, that's that's not a good idea. But for me, you know, when I was reading through the data, I was talking about kids who had, you know, 102, 103 fever. One was even hospitalized because they had 104 fever. Mind you, these are less than 10% of the kids. You know, it's a small amount, but... You know, now we have a kid who's getting the vaccine and now they're having to stay home because they've had a fever for a couple of days. You know, COVID a lot of, doesn't give a fever in a lot of little kids. You know, it, it gives them the sniffles in the far majority of cases if they get symptoms at all. About 50 percent of kids in that age group won't even get symptoms. So, mm. you know, it's like I, I have a hard time giving a child a vaccine sometimes when the side effects may be more than the actual illness themselves. But of course, there are other reasons to be vaccinating. It's not just to prevent severe illness in the child. It's to you know, decrease the risk of them getting the multisystem inflammatory syndrome that mm-hmm. can occur six weeks post-infection. It's also so they don't bring it home to a vulnerable person and give it to their mother like my child did, <laughs> and, or so forth. and now so, they're, you know, it, it's really not so black and white. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and I don't know how this all squares out. I mean, we're we're still waiting on the data to see how bad and how effective our treatments are against the Omicron. Um, Omicron. I either go to make it like Comic Con or 
Omnicron, <laughs> like the hotel chain. So there I am. Uh, they're testing right now six months to two-year-olds and two to five-year-olds. And oh my God, we're going to be having this discussion and this hesitancy again. Um, what do you think it takes to get the schools in areas where we are? You know, we both live in New Jersey, uh, work in New York to get the public schools to say, yeah, the kids can take the masks off. Well, um, I would say that you have to disassociate the public teachers union from the politicians, and then you might see the mask being removed. Unfortunately, um, you know, we saw far too much involvement from the teachers union when it came to what some of the public health recommendations are in our children. And you even saw the American Academy of Pediatrics like quietly took down from their website the importance of facial recognition and babies seeing people faces because of the politics around it. I mean, it is just mind blowing on how we are just pushing under the rug some of the what have known consequences to children, like keeping them isolated, hiding their faces, uh, not letting them have even physical interaction, not even just looking at other people, but, you know, being able to physically touch each other and play and be kids. Um, And unfortunately, I believe that it is the politics that are keeping children in mass. Um, and it is not the science. My son is in a private, he's three and a half in a private preschool. And they're in masks all day long. And the parents are told when we pick them up that we have to wear masks. We're outside. They're outside at that point. I don't wear my, I'm the only parent. I purposefully do not wear my mask when I pick him up from preschool because my daughter's public school is half a block away and not one adult is wearing a mask when they pick their mask children up. And I, I just don't understand the disconnect. So I was kind of just testing, see if anybody said anything. I did it a few times. We all get an email saying, we're trying to keep everybody safe. Parents, please wear your mask. And you know what, Dr. Sapphire, I did because I'm not looking to cause trouble. I was just seeing if maybe like other parents were fed up like me and they were like, hmm, half a block away. It's totally different. But, you know, this is a private preschool and I'm so tempted to just call them up and say, look, I know what you're trying to do. You're just trying to stay open and keep everybody safe. But look at the damage that we're doing, keeping these three year olds in masks. Should I have that conversation? Should I do that? Should I be the uh, the rubble rouser? I'm not sure how far you'll get with that, but I, I can tell you that, you know, if it, it is certainly not one size fits all. And it is just another level of discrimination amongst children who are at certain schools um, that are able to do certain things and others that are unable to do certain things. And um, this is something that I do believe that Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, as well as Dr. Fauci, should be making a priority because children have continued to be put on the back burner for them. They have not made them a priority. The only message that they're getting across right now is get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. And yes, while that will benefit our society, there are so many things that could be done that could benefit our children, but they're not doing it. And they don't do it because of the politics associated with it. I know. Um, (laughs) Hopefully we won't be having the same conversation in six more months, but I I think that we will be, sadly. Sad but true. I hope you have great holiday plans. Now that you've got your, you know, you're you're bulletproof right now, you and the family. (laughs) 
Well, you know, if by great holiday plans you mean my husband's going to be on call in the hospital the week of Christmas and I'm on call the week of New Year's, then yes, we have great holiday plans. January vacation <laughs> um, but, is in your you know, future. I, just, I love I love everything about the season. Uh, you know, holiday decorations are up galore and it is a time about being together. And I think that people just need to remember that our physical and mental health is extremely important. But COVID isn't the only thing that could affect you and your family. So do everything you can to keep yourselves as happy and healthy as you can throughout the holidays. Well said, Dr. Sapphire. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.